of my knowledge of the deacon ministry and of what was going on with them. And so, uh, having grown up in church and knowing that I was that ignorant of what deacons were, though I was there every week and uh, we were thoroughly entrenched in the church and the ministry of the church, I thought, you know, if I was that far off, we probably ought to be refreshed every so often about deacons and their ministry and who they are and what they do. And so as we gather in Acts chapter 6, we're going to begin our lesson by reflecting in the text, number one in your outline, on the timing of when deacons were first elected. So we're going to take a look at that. We're going to talk about what's happening. You will need to roll back a little bit before chapter 6 to get some of the context of what was happening because they weren't elected, selected in a vacuum. It wasn't um, an idea hatched by a committee of how to improve uh, the, uh, the attendance of the church or something like that. There was actually some things going on that set all of the deacon ministry up and caused it to be a necessity. And the Lord, by the Spirit, brought this ministry into the congregation and it has blessed in many ways since. If you back up in chapter, uh, chapter 5 and kind of pick up in verse 40, You're going to see the disciples in trouble, the apostles. They're in trouble for preaching Jesus. They're in trouble for proclaiming His name, healing in His name, and saying that salvation is in His name alone. And so the Jewish leaders have gathered together and they've come against the disciples. They've threatened them with all kinds of things. And so in verse 40, after some advice by one of the Jewish leaders to the other Jewish leaders, in verse 40 it says, And they took his advice, and after calling in the apostles, they flogged them. And they ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So they beat them. Okay? So the church was growing, and Satan was very disturbed by that. So he brought persecution, tribulation against the church, where these church leaders, as they pronounced the name of Jesus, they were arrested, they were incarcerated in a prison cell, held until they had a hearing, had a hearing, and then were unjustly, publicly beaten. Now, beating back then was a serious thing. It was not a small matter. It was a really harsh kind of punishment. And so these guys get this beating, and then they rejoice. It's like, how do we break these guys? The more pressure that the enemy put on, the more joy they found in doing what they were called to do. So... Three different times they go through this process of being threatened, and here they're threatened and beaten, and they leave that rejoicing, saying, we're happy 
to suffer for the name of Jesus. It says it there in verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And so they they were happy to carry out this ministry and persecution wasn't working to thwart the work of the church. So the enemy says, hmm, must try another avenue. If external pressure will not be successful in breaking these people of what they're doing, in fact, it says in verse 42, from every day in the temple and from house to house, they just kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Redeemer. They just went on preaching. So the beating didn't stop them. So the enemy steps back and says, well, if beatings, pressure from the outside, is not going to stop them, then there must be another way to slow this thing down. So, Satan, always being insidious, sneaky, schemy, the Bible says of him in the beginning of the Bible, chapter 3, the book of Genesis, that he was subtle, crafty. He goes to work not by persecution on the outside, He begins to work by division on the inside. He knows if he can't put a whooping on them and get them to stop preaching the gospel by coming at them hard from the outside, what he's going to do is he's going to sneak inside and he's going to use his subtle, crafty ways to divide the believers. So that's what he does. So in chapter... 6 verse 1, in the timing, not only has there been persecution, but there's been growth. And Satan hates that the persecution doesn't work, and he hates that the growth hasn't stopped. And so he strategizes to work from the inside. So it says in verse 1, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. So the timing is, persecution's going on, it's not working, the church is growing. While they're increasing. So Satan goes to work and takes a different angle, a different approach. He tries now to work from the inside. If he can't come against us, he'll come among us. And he'll work from the inside among the believers. Over the ages of the church, one of the greatest discouragements in the testimony of Christianity has been the church's own internal strife. We have been not busy fighting the devil. We've been busy fighting each other. And a lot of energy gets expended that way. Well, let's move into number two. We should be warned of the trouble that was rising 
in the congregation. Notice what happens in the second part of verse 1. It says, while the disciples are increasing, a complaint, and the word is a grumbling. People grumble. It comes from the word to murmur. It's that kind of low-pitched conversation you're having with somebody because you really haven't quite gotten the gall to tell it publicly, so you're kind of murmuring with them. This started spreading through the church, and it was serious. So this murmuring begins, and it begins to spread through the congregation, and it's spreading so much that it finally as often happens in churches, gets to the church leadership. I tell some people sometimes I'm the last to know that something happened because a great number of people figure that I must know I'm the preacher and so everybody goes on not telling me and then one day I find out something. I said, how long has that been going on? They said, well, a couple of weeks. You didn't know about it? I said, first thing I've heard about it. You're kidding me. And so it finally rose up, bubbled up enough that it got the attention of the apostles. And so the apostles were worried. Well, what's happening? Here's the complaint. It came on the part of the Hellenistic. Now, this is an important phrase to understand. These were people who had gathered at Pentecost. They'd come from other nations to celebrate the big feast. They'd come in... Some had come for the visit. Others, over the years, had moved there. They had been repatriated to Israel after having lived outside of Israel. But something had happened to them. While they were living abroad, while they were living in other countries, they began to develop the culture of those people. Began to dress like them. They began to talk like them. They picked up the accent from them. Some of them had even gone as far as not learning the native tongue of, at that time would be Aramaic, a form of Hebrew. They were speaking Greek, which was sort of the international trade language. And so they were thoroughly culturally different. Now, included in that cultural difference are a few people who are actually ethnically different. They were people who had become what are called proselytes. They had heard the message of Judaism, had believed in the one true God, had entered into the covenant community through the head of the household and all the men of the household being circumcised, and they had adopted the traditions and the religion of the nation of Israel. And so some of these folks that are in this group are actually Hellenized, they're Greek in culture, but they're also Greek by birth. They're not Israelites. And so, because this culture is different, they're being ignored. Notice what it says. It says, it rose on the part of the Hellenistic against the native Hebrews. What was happening? Well, Jerusalem, pretty tight-knit community. And in that tight-knit community, the Jewish people of Jewish heritage and Jewish culture and 
Jewish ethnicity, they've become pretty close. And they shared a lot of common cultural things. They cooked alike. Uh, they dressed alike. Their accents were alike. They kind of grew up together in the community, and they had come to know each other closely, and so they were kind of a tight-knit community. Well, the gospel spread through both of these communities at Pentecost. A lot of people followed Jesus from the Hebrew, solid, old-fashioned Hebrew culture, and a lot had followed from the Hellenized, the Greek culture, mostly Hebrew people who had lived in other nations, but some Greek people who had converted to Judaism. And so the gospel spread through both of them. And in that community, there was a system of social security. Kind of like our social security today. Our senior adults, once you get to a certain age, you get a check. Check comes in the mail and you apply that to your life, as lean as it may be, and, and you apply that to your life and you live on that, and it was kind of a social security. But in that day, it wasn't a check. People brought you food. There was community service where they gathered and they cooked and they served all the widows of the community. And so the community got together, identified who the widows were, and took them dinner. And they would bring this daily. Back then, no refrigerator, no freezer. So it was daily. They'd be bringing them daily. Typically, it was bread. There were a few other things involved, but bread was the staple of life. Sometimes just the grain for the cooking. And so that happened every day. Well, they... They fell into this old trap. And this old trap is the idea of cultural superiority. The belief, my culture is better than your culture. My culture has this and your culture has that. My culture thinks this way, your culture thinks that way. And therefore, your culture is inferior and my culture is superior. And therefore, I'm going to treat you inferiorly. And so it started catching on. And all of a sudden, the Hellenized widows noticed, nobody's coming to my house. Nobody's delivering my bread. Nobody's fellowshipping with me. And they figured out why. It was because the cultural Hebrews saw themselves as culturally superior, and therefore they stopped helping the culturally inferior people because they looked down upon them Remember that in their culture they had been trained, if you brush up against Gentiles, you need to go take a bath. You need to wash. You need, when you come in from the marketplace and you've been around them, you need to dip your hands six times as a symbol of your purity. In fact, Jesus and His disciples were reprimanded publicly for not doing that after having been among the crowds and coming in and eat dinner. Some of the Pharisees says, your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders and you do not wash your hands before you eat. Why? Because they had come in contact with stinking sinners. Now, this cultural superiority was sinful. It was horrid. And it began to well up within the church where people began to say, 
We don't need that kind here. Let that kind take care of themselves. That kind eats differently, talks differently. That kind dresses differently. That kind washes differently. We don't need that kind. And so, they slowly started cutting that kind off. No big announcement. Nobody got up and said, hey, my culture is superior to yours. It's just when they started dividing up the bread, they said, I don't think there's enough to take care of their kind. Let's take care of our kind first. I don't think there's enough for their people. Let's take care of our people. And this started working through the congregation to such an extent that a grave split was beginning. And that grave split was not biblical, not Christian. It was cultural and sinful. And it was Satan's second step to harm the church. If he can't put a whooping from the outside, he'll come and put division on the inside. And so it started. Well... Several things started happening. The trouble was doing three things. Let's follow those three things. First, letter A, it was hurting people. I don't know if you've ever been called inferior. I have. It's no fun. Perhaps you've suffered that. It never feels good to have someone communicate to you that you are inferior. To treat you inferior. To call you inferior. To let you alone because you're inferior. To part from you because you're inferior. All of a sudden, these poor widows who depended on their survival by the benevolence of a loving community, listen, has the love withdrawn. And as the love is withdrawn, the pain sets in and they begin hurting. And their murmur is legitimate. Second thing is happening is it's hampering gospel proclamation. Now the apostles have to get involved with all this mess that's going on, which takes away from their time in the Word, and their time in prayer, and their time in proclamation. They say that. Notice what happens in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. They're not saying we're above serving tables. That's not what they're saying. They're saying this is distracting us from our main task. Our main task is to dive into God's Word, know it, understand it, love it, eat it, digest it, and then bring it out prayerfully and teach the people. That's the calling. And so they're saying, guys, it's hampering gospel proclamation. We're having to be pulled off of task. You see, Satan wanted them off of task, so he started punishing them. He started persecuting them. He started getting them arrested and beaten. But they wouldn't get off task for that. 
They walk right back out the door and they go right back house to house and temple and synagogue. They start proclaiming Jesus and they don't get off task even with a beating. But guess what pulls them off task? Conflict. Conflict inside the church. Division. Foolishness that shouldn't be because of people thinking. Listen, Christian people thinking they're better than others. Is there not a more ridiculous way we could ever think than to think we're better than others? That's the most ridiculous thing we could ever think. The Bible says this about us, and it is our central proclamation. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Any idea of superiority is an end. High gospel idea. That's why this was so important. Third thing that's happening, I just addressed, is it's hindering gospel clarity. Now the gospel's getting clouded. Is the gospel really for everybody? Is it really for sinners? Is it really for Greeks? Is it really for other cultures? Or is this just sort of a one culture thing, one race thing? Is this gospel for the poor, the broken? Is it for the outsider and the foreigner? Is this gospel for everyone or is it not? When we segregate based on how we think, we lie about the gospel. You say, Pastor Bart, that's strong words. I'm so glad you were thinking that because Paul said that. Come with me to Galatians chapter 2 and look at how this thing kept creeping up in the church, all through the life of the church. And so, Galatians chapter 2, jump in. It says in verse 11, But when Peter came to Antioch, he's called Cephas here, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Here is cultural and ethnic superiority. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, here it is. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about what? What does it say? The truth of the gospel. This is a gospel issue. Okay, back to Acts. They were not straightforward. They were lying about the gospel. And so, they've got a problem in the church. It's hurting people. It's hampering gospel proclamation. It's hindering gospel clarity. And it's based on a foolish notion that people are better than others. Foolish notion. So what happens? Number three. We should be mindful of the seriousness of the task given to the first deacons. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to put some people in charge of trying to solve problems in the church. We're going to give guys the ministry of working on the problems in the church. So he says, look how he works it out in Acts chapter 6. I'm sorry, I jumped over to 2. In Acts chapter 6 it says, verse 3, But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. So we should be mindful of the seriousness of the task given. These guys got to solve the first church split. 
That's a big deal. They've got to convince a group of people who think they're culturally superior that they're not. They've got to help a group who have been told they're culturally inferior that they're not. So they're going to reach out to hurting people who feel the harm of being told you're inferior. And then he's got to reach out to prideful people who inflicted upon them the idea of superiority. They've got a big job. It's not a little thing. It's not about getting dinner to a widow now. We're past that. We're now having to go to those homes and sit down with those widows and say, listen, my sweet sister in Jesus, you are not inferior. I don't know what you were told, and I don't know who left you out, but I want to tell you something. The Lord Jesus shed His blood for you. Be comforted, sweetheart. And then they had to go and sit in front of people who intentionally neglected others and say, you are wrong. Boy, don't you know that was received well. You didn't want that visit, did you? And so, what I want to do is kind of bring you into an illustration, kind of help you see what the deacons are doing. So, Laney, would you help me out and run and go get, get what I need? Alright, great. Laney's going to help me out. Um... I want you to see what deacons are and how they do it. And and I'm bringing something out to kind of help illustrate it. Because I think sometimes when we see something in action, it helps us uh, work through what we're supposed to do in our action and how we're supposed to deal with others. You see, what was happening is the church was experiencing some major league bumps. And the deacons were having to be called elected and set apart for a purpose, and that purpose was to help the church work through things. So, uh, Laney brought my mountain bike for me. Um, most of you know that I love mountain biking. Landon asked me if I was going to do any tricks or stunts. I said, if I did that, you'd just be calling 911 and it'd be lame. And Landon said, oh no, that'd be exciting. That wouldn't be lame at all. Calling 911 would be great. So, uh, no, uh, I, I want to talk to you about how my mountain bike works. I'm an old man. I don't get to ride bikes like I used to. I used to be kind of crazy and ride, but I now have a full suspension bike because I'm old and my bones are old. And so I've got a shock absorber on the rear. All right, see that? All right. And I've got a shock absorber on the front. And uh, this allows me to go over a lot of really nasty bumps and not feel them very much. Uh, my bike has a shock that absorbs bumps, okay? Roll on to this. Russell, here's what deacons are. Deacons are shock absorbers. That's what they are. They're shock absorbers. They have to take the weight of the church on their shoulders. And as the church makes its way through the lost world, it has to bear the weight of the church and take on the bumps of a sinful and broken world. And it has to absorb it in such a way that it keeps the church from two things, wear and weariness. The wear comes when the bumps are just 
breaking you down. They hit you so hard that they hurt you. Weariness comes from the fact that if you keep on hitting those bumps that wear you, you become weary from it and you just can't go anymore. And so I can ride on a mountain bike with a full suspension maybe three times as long as I can ride on a mountain bike without. Maybe four. Because it doesn't make me as worn and weary. So a deacon has to take the weight of the church and bear it. This is a big job. And they have to take that church through its course in the world and the bumps that come from the sinfulness and fallenness outside and inside the church. And they have to protect the church by literally absorbing the shock. Listen, guys, into their own person. The hurt is absorbed into the own person. That's a hard job. But listen, the deacons were called not to just be shock absorbers, but there's a way they're shock absorbers. They have to be full of the Spirit. You see, my bike is a neat bike because it works on a cushion of air. That's how my shocks work. And so my shocks are able to do what they do because they are filled with something. They're filled with air. And so this shock is full of air. But listen what happens. Watch, look, watch my bike when the air goes out. What happens? The shock collapses. And it's no longer able to absorb. Because the air's gone out. My brothers, my sisters, the ministry of a deacon as a shock absorber is an impossible task if that man is not filled with the Spirit of God. That's why that's the kind of man that is chosen. Because he has to take, by supernatural power, bumps and bangs and bruises that would otherwise hit and hinder the congregation. He has to take him into his body. He has to take him into his soul. He has to take him into his heart. And so if he is not full of the Spirit, this guy is actually going to be a danger to himself. Because if you ride a shock that is damaged, it actually gets damaged. If it's damaged by lack of air, it actually gets damaged by now hitting metal to metal down inside. And so, guys, here's what you have to do. If you want to be a deacon and you want to serve as a deacon, it's the same thing every Christian ought to do. It's the same thing every minister has to do. But you especially have been named in the Bible to have to do this. You have to be filled with the Spirit. And so here's how that works. You've got to get up every day of your ministry life and you've got to pump up your heart, not by your own labor, okay, but by you being in God's Word. You cannot do this if God is not working in your heart through His Word and filling you. Watch what happens when we keep filling this up. Man, this thing starts springing up. There we go. And it starts getting back normal. I've actually got a meter on here that tells me how much I should put in here. And it's based on weight. And the fatter I get, the more air i got to put into it. Alright? Deacons, I'm afraid y'all are riding in a fat church right now. Okay? 
It's funny, but it ain't. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about the global church. The global church right now is fat with strife. And she is putting lots of weight on our deacons. Guys and gals, when we talk about deacon ministry at our church, we're talking about men who've done things behind the scene you don't even know about. Chuck got up here and listed a bunch of stuff that just about everybody in the church can do. I want to tell you something. I've been in meetings with Chuck and counsel with Chuck and watched Chuck and many other deacons in the church have to weep and cry and hurt because of brokenness inside our church family. They never get to say anything about it. He couldn't get up here with the kids today and say, yeah, I spent all last week helping this broken family. He's not going to say that because he's got to keep that quiet. And so... My brothers as deacons, church as deacons, a person full of the Spirit is a person who, by the time of their salvation, the Holy Spirit filling them, by the time in God's Word, by the time in prayer, and by the time in the fellowship of the Word, they are daily, daily, because we're a bunch of leaky guys, aren't we? Aren't we leaky? I used to have a leaky shock. This one doesn't, this one doesn't leak because a buddy of mine gave me this really nice shock. But... Uh, If we take our time, guys, and we get filled with God's Word, we're able to bear the weight of the church through the bumps of reality and keep from rattling our church members to death with the hardships of who we are as a people. This is really important. And it's a sweet and precious ministry to our church. And when we don't have men who are filled with the Spirit doing this, there's damage. So, we have to have men that are filled with the Spirit. That's going to fall at some point and hit that guitar, so I'm just going to lay it down. How's that? I'll feel better about that. So, that's the first illustration I wanted to show you. Andrew, go get me my second thing. Where are you? You'll get me the second thing that I need. Uh, there is not just the need to be filled with the Spirit. Um, the Bible says they have to be full of wisdom. And so I found out that deacon ministry is really an important ministry in wisdom. Because what deacons have to do is they have to make some pretty important decisions. One of those decisions, let's go to number two, uh, the second part. Deacons are fire managers. <laughs> Listen, churches are all the time having fires. Uh, there's fires every week in church. Thank you, Andrew. Good job. There's fires in church every week. And those fires, man, they spring up. You just never know when they're going to start. Somebody will call me some week and say, Hey, Pastor, what would you do this week? And <laughs> I put out fires. Uh, and, and a lot of times I put out fires with a lot of deacons helping me because that's part of their ministry is to be fire managers. They've got to kind of think through this whole fire thing. They've got to know when there's a bad fire, it takes water. This uh, I didn't fill these up because I figured having five gallons of gas in the church wasn't a good idea. Okay, this is uh, five gallons of water, six gallons I think. It's not full. I wouldn't be holding it like this. Deacons... You have to have wisdom to know which fires that you just got to put water on. There are some things that you have to go to and you just got to put it out. 
You just got to see that it's bad, that it's wrong, and you've got to have the backbone and the wisdom and the strength and the walk with the Lord to just walk up to that fire. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of folks that just the best thing you do for them is pour cold water on them. Put them out. Just put the fire out. Just let them know what you're doing is wrong, it's sinful, it's hurtful. Don't let it spread any further. You said, Pastor Bart, you, that's, that's a cool illustration. Is there any Bible that backs that up? I am so glad you were thinking about that too. Proverbs 26.20 20 said, The fire goes out for lack of wood. And then after that it says, And the whispering stops for lack of spreading. One of the most dangerous and heinous things that happens in a church is needless murmuring. Fires that ought to be put out immediately. And deacons, they have to have the wisdom to navigate that and go and take care of it. They also, they need to know what kind of fire needs wood. That's part of their wisdom. There's good fires that burn in church. Eddie Moser, his son wrote a, wrote a poem the other day and said, there's snow on the roof, but there's fire in the heart. Talking about Eddie's white hair. It's really sweet. There are good fires that burn in the church, and the deacon ministry ought to be a ministry that is toting good firewood to every good fire and helping people grow in their fervency for Jesus. That's their ministry. Deacons also need to know that they are not like regular people in the church. Listen to me. They are not like regular people. You say, oh yeah, they are. No, they're not. The Bible sets them apart in an office. I'm not saying they're better than anybody. That's not what I said. But they are not the same as anybody because God has called them to this task. The church has affirmed them to that task. They have embraced that task. That means that when they get to a bad fire and they go to fuel it, it's not like putting regular wood on it. When a deacon gets into a bad fire and helps it, it's not like regular wood. It's like gasoline. But I want to tell you a danger, Richard, to help you with that danger about gasoline. Others who've ever made the mistake, you, you, you'll get hurt putting gas on a fire. You will. Sweet little waiter over here at Los Portales. It's getting about Los Portales time, isn't it? Y'all feeling that? That little sweet little waiter over here showed me a picture of his son the other day. They were playing around with gasoline in a fire. Like 65% of his body was burned. I've seen deacons burned because they decided to put fuel on a bad fire. And it was like putting gas on it. And it hurt the people, and it hurt them. You have a responsibility to be full of the Spirit so you can handle the bumps, but full of wisdom so you can know the difference between putting water on a bad fire and gas on a bad fire and bringing wood to a good fire. There's a difference. And that's where the wisdom comes in. Okay. The third thing that it said, and I didn't put it in the outline, but you can write this. It said that um, they were to be of good reputation. Here's the deal. That means people will trust you with their fires and their bumps. 
If people don't trust you with their fires and their bumps, they're not going to level with you. So you should be of such good reputation that if somebody's going through a bump, they'll talk to you about it so you can help them with it. If somebody's got a good fire, they'll tell you about it and you can feed it. If somebody's got a bad fire, you can pour cold water on them to help them. Trusted. Good reputation. Now I need to move through these last things and get you to a place where we kind of see the big picture in deacon ministry. So, number four. We should be sensitive to the process by which the first team of deacons was selected. The congregation took to heart what the apostles said. Don't pick your buddy. This is not the buddy system. Don't pick who you think should be the representative of your age group. Don't pick who you think ought to be the person to take care of that thing in church that you don't like. You go doing that and you will elect people that will not just not be the right person. But they'll not be able to have the wisdom on the fires and you might get your buddy burned. And they may not have the spirit to handle the bumps and you might end up putting your buddy in and it absolutely break him because he was not full of the Spirit, and the work of the ministry of the deacon was too heavy, and it ended up shattering him, and you thought he was going to be your representative up there. That's not how it works. They're not the power board here. They love Jesus and serve Him, and love the church and serve us. And I cannot tell you over the ten years of my ministry how many of the bumps of my life have been softened by godly deacons. Because as this bump was coming at me, they stood between me and the bump. And they absorbed the hurt into their own heart. They didn't even tell me about it. I'd find out from another source. Because they were loving Jesus and loving the church. Don't put in somebody who could be ruined by the very thing you want them to accomplish. If they're not full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and trustworthy, you're setting a man up for a punishment, not a ministry. I'm not saying God punish him. I'm saying the punishment of blowing it with the wisdom or the punishment of having no spirit and just being bam, 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 bam with the rigors of church life and no spirit to take that and compress it and hold it. Be careful. Make sure it's congregational. Make sure that they're selected according to it. And make sure you lay hands on them. Because you know when you lay hands on them, this is what happens. Look at what it says there in verse 6. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. You know what you're doing? You're making them an extension of you. And you're laying your hands of trust on them. And you're saying to them, we appoint you, and I'm laying upon you my own burden of being in the church. Carry me well. I need you. And so when we get into the deacon ministry and the election is going to be in a few months, I want us to be ready for that and look for these kind of men from among us. Let me share one last thing, and this is what we close with. We should be attentive to the meaning of the title given to the ministry called deacons. This was very important. It came from a word that meant servant. Chuck said it very well. But it didn't mean servant just out by itself. 
It meant servant as an emissary of someone else. Now, I don't know if y'all were watching earlier, but I simply told Laney, I said, Laney, will you go get that bike for me? Laney just got up and did it. Now, we talked about that beforehand, but Laney did it because she's my daughter. We're in a relationship. Okay, Andrew, I told Andrew to go and get it. I told him I was going to do that. But you know what I am? I'm Andrew's boss. I can tell him to do that. All right? He's an intern here, and I can say, Landon, do jumping jacks. Not Landon, Andrew. Andrew, do, do jumping jacks, and he better do them. Now, I don't do that, but it's boss relationship. Now, I was going to use another relationship. Sherry is at family day, and so she's with the cadets over at the Youth Challenge program today, so she couldn't be here. But I was going to ask her to get something for me as well, and she was going to be an example of doing it out of a love relationship. You see, Sherry's not my servant. She's not my daughter or child. She does it out of a relationship. When we become servants of Jesus as deacons, listen carefully, we are first working for the best boss in the universe. Okay? God is your boss. That's why you call Jesus Lord, and you call God God. There's only one of them. You are in a boss-servant relationship. But you're more than that. You're also in a father-child relationship. When you work for the Lord, when you serve God, you're serving your daddy. Lainey loves to do stuff for me, and I love to call on her to do stuff for me. And she has great joy in doing things for me. And she's delighted when she does it well. And I say, good job, Lainey. That's just a relational thing. But there's even a better one. When I ask Sherry to do something for me, she does it because she loves me in a whole different relationship. She's my wife. Listen, you are functioning as the bride of Christ and everything you do for Jesus, you do out of love. Because He loves you and saved you. And so as a deacon, you're working in all three relationships as an emissary as a boss to servant, being sent. As a father to child, asking to serve. As a husband and wife, serving in love. The word deacon carries all of that. And every man who ever carries the title deacon walks into every situation as an employee or servant representing his boss. As a child representing his or her parent. And as a spouse representing their spouse. In other words, the ministry of the deacon is a love ministry. With the love of Jesus coming to and the love of Jesus coming through. Do you know what's great about these deacons, these first deacons? They were great evangelists too. They got out and shared the gospel. You find Stephen and Peter in the next two chapters out telling other people about Jesus because they loved Him. Would you bow with me? I want you today to close the service with prayer for deacons. Prayer about deacons. I want you to pray first for the deacons that are already serving. They've had a lot of wear and tear in the life of their ministry. They've had to carry a fat church through some bumpy territory. And that was hard. And they've done well. And we're here and where we are today because they were willing to stay the course in the pressure, in the heat, in the hurt they stayed. So don't you pray for them. 
Some of them are hurting from all of it. It wasn't easy. But I want you to pray for men who are considering and being considered over the next two months to become deacons at our church. I want you to pray for them. That there would be no buddy system, no representative system where we bring men in who simply take a beating or make a huge error because they were not the right choice of filled with the Spirit and wisdom. They were simply somebody that we liked and wanted a popularity contest over. Don't do that to a man. He'll regret it and you'll regret it. Seek men full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Know what a good fire is and a bad fire is. Listen carefully. Seek men who love Jesus. Pray for that now. Now some of you here, we've talked about Jesus today and you're foreign to Him and the whole idea of Jesus is new to you. Or you've been in church a long time and you've never surrendered to Jesus. You've never come into a relationship where you could call Jesus the things that the Scripture refers to Him as a husband, a brother, a friend, a Savior. You just stood at a guilty distance from Him. I want to invite you to Jesus today. Because the ministry of this church, that's what we're about. Is We're a ministry of Jesus. And we want you to know Him. The Bible says that you in your willful sinfulness, separated yourself from God in such a way that you could never, by your own effort, recover that. You can't fix it. All the religion and all the works and all of the trying that you could ever do will never fix it. You're separated from God. And the Bible says you're actually on a road, a path to destruction. And if you die without Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity encountering a thing called hell. A destruction irreparable. But God in His love has looked down upon you and your plight. And in mercy, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came, lived the way you should have lived. He was sinless and perfect, obedient and love absolutely in perfection. And because of His love for you, He took your sin upon Himself at the cross, and He died for your sins. Carrying out all the punishment and wearing all the shame. And then the Bible says God raised Him from the dead on the third day, and that testified that He was the Son of God with power, having accomplished what was needed for your salvation. He attested Himself to people over 500 people over 40 days. Then the Bible says He was ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God. If you turn right now from your sin and you place your faith in Jesus, He will save you. Did you know that? Because He loves you. If you turn right now, He will embrace you. He'll hold you. He'll keep you. He'll never forsake you. If you turn now, would you turn to Jesus? Pray with me and call upon Him. God in heaven, I've sinned against you. I'm guilty. I know it. But I've heard this good news that your son Jesus came to save me. I believe he is you in human skin. I believe he is the king that deserves my obedience and the savior who died for my sins. I turn from my own way and I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Save me, O God. Take me as your own child. 
I ask that in Jesus' name. As God leads you today, would you stand? Would you respond to His work in you?